February, and we're on Hadrian's Wall in the north of England. The wall was built in the second century AD at the command of the Emperor Hadrian to defend the northwest frontier of the Roman Empire. It's barely light, the snow on the ground, and a bitter wind is blowing straight out of the northeast. As a soldier in the Roman army, you're standing on the wall on duty, probably wondering how on earth you got yourself into this mess. But you can see that the local tribes are wearing something very practical that keeps them warm and dry, and it's called the Birus Britannicus. The Birus is an all-in-one cloak from ankles to head, and it's got no seams apart from one, and then it's all woven on one loom in one piece, and then just sewn up the front and the only way you can get into it is by climbing into it and hopefully getting your head towards the hole and the hood is also attached and so when it's on it's actually down to the ground and up above your head and you can't do anything because your arms are inside. That's Sue Day who recreates ancient textiles and I'm Jo Andrews, the host of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm a hand weaver interested in what cloth tells us about ourselves and our societies. Often the stories and information that textiles give us are ignored and we lose a whole dimension of human experience. This episode is about cloaks and capes, a piece of clothing that has as good a claim as any to being a universal garment. It crosses cultures and centuries. It has accompanied humanity down the long march of time and has been repurposed and reshaped by almost everyone, from saints to sinners, from highwaymen to hobbits. You could spend a lifetime researching this one garment. But here's an episode of Haptic and Hue that looks at just some aspects of the all-purpose cloak. Sue works at the Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire, and she's made herself a Burrus Britannicus. It is very restricting, but it's a waterproof coat or cloak. It would have been worn by virtually everybody, including all the plebeians out in the fields. You may know of them as plebs, that's the shortened word. It means the common people out in the field, the workers. But it would also have been worn by the higher officials as well. And the soldiers would have been wearing them as well. Now, it was well known that if the Roman army was on march, they would send out scouts. And those scouts would go to any occupied area. So, for instance, our villa is only three miles away from the Foss Way. And they would actually go to the villa and several others that are around us and commandeer all of the woven material. 
and that includes all the cloaks and everything else. I always tell people that if you heard the army were on the march, you hid everything. <laughs> the important thing about the Beerus Britannicus was that it was warm, but magically it was also waterproof. It was made from sheep's fleece, sheep's wool, and it was just washed. So to get rid of all the dirt and all the mucky bits of sheep, it would then have been spun and woven in the grease. So you've still got the lanolin. So once it was made and you were wearing it, it's all covered in lanolin. So when the rain hits it, that runs off. Now we know it would have been spun as a worsted spin. So that's spun along the fibres because that's the best one to help the rain also run off as well. It's almost like today's wax jacket. You can think of it in the same way. You know, the barber wax jackets. You put those on, they're covered with a covering of oil to help the rain, and they're waterproof as well, and windproof, which the Beerus would have been as well. It was a tightly woven cloak. They were restricting to wear because they had no armholes and no open seams. If you wanted to use your arms, you had to hitch the cloak up until you freed an arm. But they became highly coveted in Rome, where they were prepared to pay a huge amount for them. But we do know that during the second century, one of the emperors, Diocletian, actually wrote the Edict of Diocletian, and the second item on his list of exported items was a Beerus Britannicus. And that was worth, in today's money, 250 kilograms of pork. That's a great deal of pig in anyone's terms, about 550 pounds in weight. Diocletian was setting what he considered to be fair prices to be paid for items. Of course, being a textile, there are no surviving biri that we know of. But at Chedworth Villa, there is a Roman mosaic of the seasons, and depicting winter is a little cherub-like figure wearing a representation of a birus. And not far away, in Sirencester Museum, is a tombstone with three men on it who could be soldiers. They appear to be wearing the British cloak. All you can see are their faces with their little toes sticking out at the bottom. But there is a cloak that's more than 2,000 years old, and it's in pretty good shape. I will say it's a perfect condition. It's a fabric with 2,000 years old, and when it's preserved in a bog, it's the best for wool. So that one is in perfect shape. They have some holes in it, like they were digging, they make some holes, and, and also they have some holes from how it was used. And you can still lift it without breaking it. So it's, it's fantastic. This is the Jerem cloak, which is around 2,300 years old. And that's Amica Sundström, a weaver and textile archaeologist at Sweden's National Historical Museum. This cloak is remarkable in so many ways. It was found by chance in the 1920s in Western Sweden. And these two men, they were digging in the bog. They, they needed to light the fire 
the material and they found this uh, this was a package the clock was folded in a packet and was three stone on top of it so they thought it will be like something very expensive inside but we know it was the clock with the the big present here so maybe they was a little disappointed but they still understand that this was an old thing so they they contact the museum in the area and they come out and look at it and say this is very special and so they send it up to stockholm it's sweden's oldest complete garment and the reason it survived and none of the british cloaks survived is because it was in a bog and for wool textile in our part of the world bogs is the best things ever so from Denmark, they have fantastic bog finds. We have it in Ireland, and probably we have much more Sweden, but we have so much trees here, so we haven't dig so much in the, the bogs like they have done in Denmark. So <laughs> This isn't the British onesie. It's a much more elegant and fashionable version of the cloak, especially for its day. It's the earliest surviving representation of a houndstooth twill that we have anywhere in the world. It was made from natural coloured white and dark wool, warped in four strands of white and four strands of dark wool, and then woven in the same way. The cloak is all deep brown now because it's been stained by the bog, but originally it would have been a striking brown and white. This is a pattern that has come down to us and is still used by designers. In black and white, it practically became the house pattern for Christian Dior. And Coco Chanel's 1960s tweed suits made great use of it. And indeed, Amica thinks that when this cloak was made, it too would have been the height of fashion. So fabric is like something very new and very unique. And this, this one has also been amazing. You have to see the color pattern is white and brown. You see it from long distance. It's very powerful. So it, obviously it are only people who have connection or some kind of power who, who developed this uh, textile and, and been using it. And clocks are a big piece of cloth. So, so it's, of course, a lot of effort put into it. And, and you can show it off in a big way. You see it and look, look and, and you see the, the person have it and say, wow, that the purpose is also wow. But then you have the purpose of hold you warm. Sweden and Denmark is not a very warm country, so you also need it to stay alive. So it has these two purposes. It keeps you warm, but it's also fantastic for showing off. Yeah, I think that part is very important here because also not everybody can have this. So it, it's very special. The knowledge about uh, weaving and also to have sheep and to make threads of it are quite new. And the Jerram cloak is a big piece of material, two and a half metres long and two metres wide. That's about eight foot by six foot six. It would have looked spectacular and it would have been extremely useful in keeping out those cold Scandinavian winds. And here lies part of the cloak's charm and the reason for its universal appeal. It's both showy and practical. Amica and her colleagues know that this cloak was woven on a Roman-style two-beam loom. 
and they've been able to show that it was made by two weavers working side by side. The method they used was that both had a shuttle and entered it at each side of the warp, meeting in the middle and crossing threads there, or as Amica notes, not quite in the middle. So it's actually very clear that you see that. And uh, so on one side, you see this crossing very well. And the fun part is also they're not exactly in the middle. It's a little more on one side. So I imagine that they are two people. One have like longer arms or are faster than the other one. So they don't come exactly in the middle. And I love these tiles like this because you get very close to the people who have made it. And it's become your friends. Like you think about how they have sit sitting there and weaving this. And like I'm a little faster than you and you the crossing comer on your side. <laughs> and that's what the careful study of textiles can do for you. Take you close to the women who sat beside each other thousands of years ago, weaving a spectacular cloak together, one working slightly faster than the other. This particular cloak, though, also hides a macabre secret. When the cloak first came to Stockholm, they noticed that it had some holes in it. The Swedish scholar and archaeologist Sunni Lundqvist suggested that these were stab marks. And because then you can see that the marks, the holes in it go through the two layers. I have to say that I was skeptical. I thought that maybe it was like when they were digging this up and make this hole. But uh, before this exhibition, they let a criminal working with, uh, with homicide to look at it. And they confirmed that it was a very sharp object to have uh, go through the fabric. And yeah, maybe Sunilinkvist is right in this. But they're not finding around the body. It's, it's just this clock who put on in, in the bog. So we don't know the history around it. We just know that in some time, some have stabbed into it. And they are not like, especially in the chest, they are quite yeah in the ending of it. So... Yeah, it doesn't mean exactly that someone had been killed in it. No one knows what the marks mean, and the Jerem cloak still guards its mystery close. I find cloaks fascinating. Once I started noticing them, I saw them everywhere. So much ancient clothing seemed to be derived from or related to the cloak or cape. There's barely a painting of the Madonna, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that doesn't show her wearing her iconic blue cloak. The incredible Byzantine mosaics of Ravenna, dating to the 6th century, are studded with cloaks. Draped over the shoulders of the three kings arriving at Jesus's crib, and the Empress Theodora and her attendants wear the most incredible collection of purple cloaks and gold-embroidered stoles. These cloaks are rich, elegant garments displaying power and wealth. And at the civilised heart of the ancient world, Rome, there were cloaks everywhere. We know that there were many types of cloaks used both in the civic and the military fields. 
they had different shapes, each with its own name. But sometimes it's not so easy to understand the shape from the sources. For example, the sagum, the lena, and the lacerna had a rectangular shape and was closed in front near the right shoulder with a fibula. The penula had an oval or circular shape and about knee length, with or without hood. For example, the cuculus had a similar shape but was shorter. So many kinds of clothes. That's Maria Stella Busana from the University of Padua. She's a professor of classical archaeology, and a fibula is a kind of brooch or fixing pin. In Rome, there was much to choose from, but each cloak told its own story, and you could only wear the one appropriate for your place in society. Cloaks were worn overall by men, but also by women. The typical feminine cloak was the palla. The palla was made up of a rectangle of fabric folded around the body and fastened on the shoulders with pins, the fibulae. The palla was worn in different ways, either over the head and all around the body, or left drapped loosely on the arms when the woman was sitting or in more comfortable position. And the matron wore it when she was in public, so she could cover her head as a symbol of modesty. So here, the cloak is a symbol of respectable female married status, used to cover the body for modesty when necessary. In Greek and Roman times, we're dealing with much simpler, less shaped clothing, more draped, like the famous Roman toga, which in some ways sounds like a cloak. Mm. In some respects, yes. Um, in other, no. On the one hand, the toga had the shape of a cloak and uh, was worn over the tunic uh, as a mantle. But on the other hand, however, it was worn in a completely different way from the cloak, which made it a true ceremonial dress. The toga was the distinct element of the Roman citizen. Initially, the toga was worn by both men and women, but starting from the second century BC, it becomes the prerogative of men alone. Only loose women and prostitutes could wear it to distinguish themselves from Roman matrons. So a properly dressed Roman citizen might be wearing a tunic, a toga and a cloak on top of all that. The one figure from Roman history who almost certainly will be wearing his cloak is the Roman soldier who used his in a very different way. The clothing of Roman soldier has undergone numerous changes over the centuries. The first clear indication of the cloaks used by soldiers can be traced back to the Republican age. Already in these chronological phases, there must have been at least 
two different types. The first, called sagum, used by all troops. The second, used by generals, called paludamentum. The sagum was an enormously practical item of military equipment, prized by all Roman soldiers when they weren't out stealing local cloaks. This was their fighting cloak. They lived in it and fought in it. And if you dropped your shield, it could even be used for make-do self-defence by wrapping it around your left arm as you fought on in the heat of battle. One Roman soldier and his cloak is still commemorated today all over Europe. In the third century, a Roman soldier was riding towards the French city of Amiens when he met a naked beggar on the road. Feeling sorry for him, he cut his cloak in half and gave it to the beggar. A vision later revealed to him that the beggar was Jesus. The soldier left the army, converted to Christianity, and set up the first monastery in France, becoming the Bishop of Tours. After performing many miracles, he was concentrated as Saint-Martin of Tours and became the patron saint of France. The remaining half of his cloak became so important to France that it was used as a royal banner in wartime, and the French kings swore their oaths upon it. The structure in which the cloak was preserved was called a capella, or little cloak, which comes down to us today as the word chapel, or little church. In France, Italy and Germany, they still celebrate St Martin's Day, or Martinmas, on November the 11th. In Venice, the children wear small capes and rush from shop to shop, banging pan lids and asking for treats. In Padua, the students wear long cloaks and parade around the town singing and drinking. And the Romans never quite gave up their love affair with the cloak. Their descendants, the Italian army, were still wearing them 2,000 years later, although they had a different name. The tabarro of the Italian troops during the First World War. This model in nowadays is called the 1518 and it's inspired from the troops, uh, the Italian troops, because it was the period when Italy was in the First World War, so in 1915 and 1918. As you can see in the inside of the tabarro, we wrote that it's made in Italy, in pure uh, wool, and there's a really nice uh, other thing that you have to clean the tabarro on the snow, because when the troops were in the mountains and they, they had this tabarro, the morning, they cleaned the tabarro on the snow. Vittorio is a member of the Zara family, Italian manufacturers who love cloaks and the stories behind them. They make a number of traditional cloaks to this day, close to Venice. One of the cloaks being the 1518, a reproduction of the Italian military cloak that went on being used well into the 20th century. Short ones for the enlisted men and longer ones for the officers. There's no doubt that the cloak 
Utabaru has a particular Italian resonance, as Vittorio's grandfather, Sandro, knows. Sandro is in his 80s now. He says he loves work so much he'd pay to come in every day to the production house where he keeps his collection of historic coats and cloaks and makes beautiful new Italian and Venetian cloaks. Sandro grew up in a world where everyone, whatever their class, wore a cloak as part of their everyday dress, from the postman to the judge. But then it began to disappear, as he explains in Italian, translated by Vittorio. Okay, he asks himself a question that was why the garment that lived and um, survived for thousands and thousands of years had lost uh, his um, popularity or its use. And so he asked himself this question and he was really fascinated by the fact that Vetabarro was worn by every type of citizen, from the nobles to the poor ones, from the American to the magistrated. So it was, uh, in Italian, is tra trasversale. It was worn by everyone. It could be worn by everyone. And these are the reasons why he decided to try to um, give life back to a um, garment like this. Sandro set about gathering all the information he could about cloaks. One of the things he quickly understood was that a lot of formal dress that is even used today derived one way or another from the humble cloak. We can see in the 1300s in Venice and in Tuscany, the tabarro was more considered as a long overcoat with wide but not long sleeves, like one of the magistrates have nowadays, or the one that the professors of university wear sometimes. And in fact, it was worn by doctors, magistrates and ecclesiastics people. And uh, so in the 14th century, the tabarro was a garment without refinements. It was a more humble garment. And at the end of the 16th century, it became uh, the cloak. And it covered the shoulders of the citizens and the travelers. But only in the 17th century, it began to be used also by the nobles. And uh, in the 1900s, it became a symbol of elegance and distinction. Sandro says cloaks were used all over Italy and had different names, but they were particularly popular in the cold areas of the north. It was mostly used in Emilia-Romagna, in Veneto and in the Po Valley. These areas were the areas where the tabarro was most diffused. And in Venice, even before the 1900s, the use of the tabarro was generalized, also to combat the winter climate, the foggy and the humid that entered in the bones, we could say. And uh, the same applies to Emilia-Romagna, where everyone rode their bikes 
to move and wind and cold did not penetrate that armor because the tabarro was seen quite as an armor because it defended you from this wind and cold. So your cloak kept the cold out and just as it had been a brilliant garment for riding a horse in, so it proved to be an excellent choice for a bicycle. And for the rich men of the Italian region of Emilia-Romana, what it concealed could be useful. And the landowners of Romagna who rode around the plain by bicycle wore the tabarro, under which sometimes they carried some tools to defend themselves. And uh, it is said, and there are some voices that go around, about uh, the fact that also Giuseppe Verdi wore in Emilia-Romagna Vistabarro and had a small caliber pistol to defend himself. I love that image of the composer Giuseppe Verdi bicycling furiously around Italy in the fog with his pistol concealed underneath his cloak. It gives us a clue as to why highwaymen and smugglers loved the cloak. The sheer volume of the thing made it easy to hide whatever you had underneath. In fact, the cloak became so associated with Italians that they were identified by them when they arrived in America as new migrants in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, Sandro's Italian fashion contemporaries thought him nuts to try to bring back something so old-fashioned. They thought he was crazy back in the past, but also nowadays designers try to produce something that is popular. And at that time, when Vetabarro was disappearing from the common use, it was really unreal that the tabarro came back to its popularity. But Sandro was really fascinated from it. It has been really hard because the fabrics with which you do the tabarro had disappeared. So there were only the, um, the old people or maybe someone that had a tabarro of their grandparents or someone that was old, we could say. And in this way, my, my grandpa, Sandro, decided to call and search these people that had a tabarro, an old tabarro, to get the material, but also to see and to form an archive like the one we have today. But Sandro says he was born against the grain, and that's the way he is. The tabarro that he has made is quite simply one of the most elegant garments I have ever set eyes on. It's Venetian in style, made of six metres of super soft felted wool that's produced especially for the Zaras. The cloak is cut from two complete semicircles of rich fabric, which is warm and waterproof. Sandro and Vittorio are both tall Venetians, and as they show me just how to sweep the dark folds of their cloaks over their shoulders, this is more like a dance than putting on a piece of clothing. You know that Sandro has created something incredible. 
per me è un indumento magico. Sandra thinks that the tabarro is a, a magic indument and uh, when you wrap yourself in it, you are only you and the tabarro. Wearing the tabarro is courage, is not uh, caring about the fashion, the social fashion and what is popular at the moment. The tabarro is synonym of courage. You don't care what the society thinks. Sandro says you have to find the tabarro that is right for you. And he was saying that you got to try every tabarro and find the one that is yours. And it's not like the fashion we wear every day. You can't wear the tabarro if you don't feel it yours. You gotta find the tabarro that finds you. It's a sort of idea where you gotta find the tabarro that suits you in the best way. You need to have your tabarro and you can't wear the one of the others. I wonder if Little Red Riding Hood felt the same way about her cloak before she was gobbled up, or if witches on their broomsticks had such a personal relationship with theirs. Certainly they seem to be irrevocably connected to flight in the modern mind. Hollywood heroes like Batman and Superman wear them, and I think that's because they came from comics and illustrations, where the cloak easily conveyed drama and movement through the air. But equally, it could be because of the mystery that cloaks symbolise even to this day. But they also signal evil, as in Dracula, and care, as in the uniform of nurses. And in case anyone thinks this is all history, Catherine, the Princess of Wales, was looking extremely elegant wearing a bright red cloak on an official visit to South Korea late last year. Back in the Veneto, where the Zaras produce their cloak, sits Katya Simeon. She's the woman at the sewing machine. She's worked there for 16 years and loves making the thousand or so cloaks that she constructs every year. C'è come una cosa personale, una qualcosa che ti che ti appassiona. She has a very personal relationship with them. She actually feels like they are hers and uh, she feels a lot of passion about them. Katia believes very strongly that the tabaro chooses the wearer and not the other way around. She sees it happen as people try them on in front of her. So she's saying that every single person must feel like the tabarro is theirs and furthermore, depending on every single person's characteristics, there are different models which let's say are more suitable in a way. It is only in the moment when you wear it that you actually feel like it's your tabarro. Therefore, it is the tabarro that chooses the person, not the person that chooses the tabarro. Katya's own cloak is a green 1518. I don't have a cloak, I'm waiting for one to choose me. And that might just mean a trip back to Italy. What hardship. Thank you to the entire Zara family for their hospitality and knowledge, but especially to Vittorio and his brother Alessandro, who did the hard work 
of translating Sandro and Katya's wisdom. Thanks too to Sue Day, Amica Sundström and Maria Stella Busana for their knowledge. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund us via Buy Me A Coffee or by becoming a friend of Haptic and Hugh. This keeps the podcast independent and free from advertising and sponsorship. It also brings you extra content every month with a separate podcast called Travels with Textiles, hosted by Bill Taylor and me, where we cover a whole range of different textile subjects. You can find out more about this episode and see pictures and videos of how to put on your elegant Venetian cloak at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen. We'll be back next month with a puzzle. When two forms of artistry meet, who is the artist? Come with us as we explore this in the company of some of the best modern tapestry weavers in Scotland's celebrated weaving studio and follow the process of turning a new piece of art into a tapestry. Join us next time on the first Thursday of the month. And until then, thank you for listening and enjoy whatever making you are doing.